0: Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. It's been a little while since I have done just a solid news episode. I have gone back and forth between doing some deep dives on specific topics like the Visa Dispute Monitoring Program versus the Visa Fraud Monitoring Program, talking about some of the UPS manipulations that are out there for refund fraud and other things. And I had another topic I thought would be important and I was going to deep dive on today. But the headlines in the last few days had other plans. One of the reasons I haven't done news episodes every Thursday is partially because not every week are there super relevant stories that not only... The headline and the story itself are important, but also they give good talking points and good lessons for those of us who are in the industry to consider either as a cautionary tale or a lesson to be learned or. Uh, Sometimes it's good, (laughs) this time not so much, but sometimes the headlines are good and I love to celebrate those when they happen. But specifically this week with Elon Musk's announcement that his purchase of Twitter is on hold due to fake accounts. That was definitely something not only that caught my attention, but that was brought to my attention by a couple of awesome listeners, as well as Bolts Public Issues. Bolts is a fraud and payments uh, service provider that's been in the industry the last several years. and The Wall Street Journal, or actually, sorry, New York Times, it did an article on them last week, I think provides some good information for people in the industry. So again, I don't usually name company names unless they are in the headlines. But once they're in the headlines, and I know that reputable journalists have done their research, I feel like it's fair enough to talk about. And again, there are so many things we can learn from real life examples that are easier to learn or just easier to understand when there's an actual event to compare it to. So We'll mostly talk about those things. I am going to just touch a little bit on Google's announcement uh, that they're going to be providing one-click payments via Chrome along with some virtual cards. I'm still trying to get clarification. There's some conflicting information out there. So I'm trying to get some clarification on how those virtual cards will be presented through the payment flow, especially to the merchants, but also issuing banks and acquirers. So that will hopefully be on next week's episode, if not the week after. This week, I am actually in San Francisco for the Marketplace Risk Management Conference. I think that next week's episodes might be focused on that, but we'll see. I'm looking forward to learning more about trust and safety than I already do. I feel like that's an area that I'm pretty good at, but I know the fraud side so much better. So looking forward to seeing some familiar faces and meeting a few new people. If you didn't listen to Tuesday's episode with Gil Rosenthal, I highly recommend it. It was such a good conversation. You know, we started out talking about the frustration of when, especially C-suite executives or leadership teams, kind of just write off fraud as just a cost of doing business. And the challenge there is that When you say things like that, then it makes it acceptable and it makes it seem like there's nothing we can do about it. We're just kind of resigning to the fact that it's there and we're just going to lose a whole bunch of money. And those of us that are in online fraud know that that's not the case, that there's so much more that can be optimized. And even more than that, when you write off fraud as a cost of doing business, in a lot of ways, you're also writing off your customer experience and a lot of other pieces that just need to be thought out ahead of time so that you're more proactive then react it. If you didn't listen to that episode, I really recommend it. I enjoy talking with Gil when we get the chance and I'm so grateful that he was able and willing to drop everything for me this past week so that we could record the interview because truthfully, I forgot to schedule one for last week. So... He was not a villain, but he was, and I'm so grateful for it. I was going to have him back anyway, but I was like, is there any way you can do it this week? And so grateful. I'm trying to stop saying with that so often, but then I was about to say it. So anyway, now you guys are all going to hear how many times I say it. I listened back to one a while ago and was like, okay. I need to stop saying that. Like, I need to put a shock collar on. Uh, It's just a way to break in between topics. So speaking, let's start off with Elon's announcement uh, that his purchase of Twitter is on hold due to fake accounts. I haven't talked about my own opinion of Elon Musk wanting to buy Twitter kind of out of the blue for, was it, $44 billion? Honestly, because I don't think that my opinion matters that much. I mean, it does, but like in the grand scheme of things. But also... Because it didn't have that much to do with our world. But now that he is citing fake accounts for his reasoning to kind of hold off and reconsider, I think that does touch our world. And I know that at least a couple of you are interested in hearing my take on it, and I appreciate that. Can I also just say how extremely humbled I am by how many of you are listening and reaching out and telling other people about it? Mind-boggling? But I appreciate it very much. Let's backtrack a little bit in case you've been living under a rock or you were in a coma for the last couple of months or you don't ever read tech news or just regular news. A few months ago, Elon Musk, maybe it was just two months ago, announced that he wanted to buy Twitter. And it's been a saga. I'm not going through all the ups and downs, but I think Semi approved it. Twitter's a public company, so they'd be bringing it back to private and all kinds of stuff. Also, I guess I should probably say here that even though I do know a few people that work at Twitter, I have not talked to them about this incident, so I'm not even worried about saying something that I shouldn't. I've been tempted to reach out, especially since I'm about to be in San Francisco, but uh, I don't know. I feel like they're a little busy right now. So last week, I think on Friday, he announced via Twitter, because that's, you know, what we do now that his purchase of the social media company is on hold due to his discovery, in quotation marks, I'm putting those quotation marks on, that there are more fake accounts than he assumed. According to Elon, Twitter claimed to have less than 5% of fake accounts. So less than 5% of all their total accounts were quote-unquote fake accounts in their network. And he said that wasn't true, or he didn't think it was true, but then he gave no evidence to prove that's wrong. And in a recent regulatory filing, That's what they claimed was 5% of fake accounts. You know, usually in regulatory filings, that's not something you're going to fudge much, if at all. I will say I'd be curious to know if this is active accounts because I am sure they've had to shut down many more than 5%. So I'm assuming these are active and then you've got to wonder if they identified five percent active accounts why didn't they turn them off so there's a little bit of questions in the details but anyway he's claiming that this isn't true but not providing any proof as to why it isn't true so he proposed via tweet asking users to analyze a sample set of twitter accounts to identify fake and duplicate accounts so now he's like what crowdsourcing um asking other people to, I don't know, create, use a sample set of 100 and see how many of those accounts are fake. How are you finding them? Are you looking at your followers? Like, it just doesn't make sense to me, but a lot of this doesn't. So in its latest transparency report, Twitter said that user reports of spam rose nearly 10% to 5.1 million in the first half of 2021. There's been a total of 28.8 million spam reports between January 2018 and June 2021. So Elon also went on to disclose on Twitter Friday that Twitter's sample size is 100 accounts and says he's waiting to see Twitter's analysis on fake account numbers. Then he said that there's a chance that it might be over 90% of daily active users are fake and spammy and bots. That is almost impossible I think to say that and so I I do know that in the most recent days Twitter has come out or at least Elon has said that Twitter has their legal team has reached out to him to say that he has breached his NDA with them and I know there's also some claims of market manipulation of him sharing this on such a public platform especially the public platform that he wants to purchase but again I'm not here to try to figure out a billionaire that is beyond my pay <laughs> But what I can do is provide some of my thoughts on this announcement. So first on his announcement, my first thought when I read that headline that he was putting the deal on hold due inciting fake accounts was that this was just an excuse to back out of an impulsive decision without taking responsibility for making an impulsive decision in the first place. That was just my gut feeling. Elon Musk has made his money creating Tesla cars and SpaceX, which has a lot of government contracts and the satellite company Starlink. Is that what it's called? Sorry, guys. (laughs) I just kind of spaced out on that one. He's never been in business to consumer e-commerce or even marketplaces. It is a whole other ballgame when you're selling to businesses, the car dealerships to sell cars or even doing like the hundred dollar deposit or whatever that was to put the truck on hold or, you know, all those things. Those are very different than e-commerce as well as user generated content is like a whole other beast. I've just been thinking that he's probably way ahead of his skis, thinking that he can run it better. It's like a Monday morning quarterback being asked to play in an NFL game, an American football game to back up what. They've been saying they've been talking trash. They've been very critical of the people who are running it or playing the game, so to speak. Okay, let's call your bluff. Go play. And then maybe they won't play as well, right? And maybe he thought about that. Oh. This is a different animal. I'm probably going to look ridiculous for coming in and purchasing this and then not knowing how to to handle it. That is strictly just my guess and observation. There was a fun LinkedIn. I don't know. To me, it was fun that I just rolled my eyes at that because I could see my husband being like, your idea of fun is not the same as everyone else's. That is true. But there was a post by an awesome listener on LinkedIn about this and talking about fake accounts and and how they are such a big deal in e-com and Peter Taylor who is in the UK I think he trademarked the fraud guy I don't know if he still uses that but he and I were talking in the comments about it and he made a comment in regards to Elon being surprised that there are fake accounts in social media Peter Taylor said his discovery that there may maybe more bots on social media er, bots on social media is a little like trying to buy a dung heap and expecting it not to have flies. I thought that was funny. And that's nothing against social media. This is strictly an issue that every company, especially that has user generated content has because of so many different non-human scripted attacks, as well as bots for so many different use cases. And I'll be talking about that in a couple minutes. So it also concerns me that those comments are being blasted publicly without proof. I mean, that's dangerously close to market manipulation and maybe even slander. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but it seems pretty dangerous or just risky to be making these kinds of announcements and accusations about a company that you're about to purchase, a public company that you're about to purchase also on their platform. It's just all weird. But when it comes to fake accounts, you guys know that this is a drum I've been beating for a while. It's definitely not unique to social media, though they're more public versus other services and companies without user-generated content. So my point there is an e-commerce company that may sell apparel or sneakers, you as a consumer would not necessarily know, unless it was a marketplace, you wouldn't see, you wouldn't have visibility into how many fake accounts they have but for social media, a lot of these accounts are created to make postings for various reasons. And so there's just a lot more visibility into them when they're on social media. That doesn't mean that every online company doesn't have this problem. They definitely do, especially in the last several months. Uh, While most articles on this are focused on the accounts that post and that are reported. So I did find it interesting that all of Twitter's numbers about bots and fake accounts are around user-reported spam. That, to me, isn't the best form of measurement, but I also know it's very challenging to measure them otherwise. In my opinion, whenever there's companies that have a risk of fake accounts, I believe that they should be vetted out at the beginning, at the time of login, there are so many different ways that you can look at data when users are entering your website to be able to identify bots and other bad actors with intent to cause harm in your user base, not your network, that's cybersecurity, but more once they get an account, maybe they have intentions to use a stolen credit card or commit refund fraud or post a lot of spam or post really scary, gross stuff, right? Propaganda, other things like that. So to me, it's better to top of funnel, just not let those into your site. I know that especially for VC funded tech companies, Your user numbers are how your valuation is created. And so the rest of the business may not let you do that. But that is a best practice in my perspective, whether that is through an identity vendor who provides identity services both behind the scenes as well as additional friction as needed, depending on the risk factors, or if that's a different type of identity proofing solution. I'm trying to like dance around saying specific companies. So that's why I'm like hesitating a minute. I think there's some really interesting newer technology that's out there that is helping big companies solve these problems. There are several of them in each category, but I have picked the ones that I think are best based on what Merchants, I know, have said, but having something is way better than nothing. They're not really counting like the millions of accounts that are dormant or that go unused that would be less visible. And so I don't know if Twitter is purging those accounts, if they're deactivating them and not counting them as their user base, if they're just counting the ones that are reported by users. I don't know exactly. It's just that it was interesting to me that that was how they were measuring it was based on user reports rather than what they've identified in their network. But maybe they don't want to disclose what they've identified in their network and maybe that's OK. They certainly are probably not going to write a tweet about it like Elon did. So fake bot scripted accounts have been around for years, although anecdotally, depending on the business model and the vertical of online businesses, they've greatly increased in the past 12 to 18 months. Yeah, in part because a lot of the people who created, who kind of became fraudsters, that cut their teeth on. COVID relief fraud have now, that's all dried up, whether that was in the U.S. or U.K. or other governments, depending on how that was handled. They're now moving on. And one of the skills that they learned the most or the best, depending on how you're looking at it or who's looking at it, was to create fake accounts. For unemployment fraud and PBP. it was partially synthetic fraud. because, And the way I Think of synthetic IDs is building a credit profile and really building that up and frankensteining different information or just flat out stealing the identity. That's more for credit accounts. That's why when fake accounts are online, I just call them fake accounts rather than synthetic ID because there's a lot less preparation that goes into it. There's a lot less thought in a lot of ways. And so to me, they're just very different and you identify them differently as well. So the purposes behind creating fake accounts, it really depends on the business. But if they have user generated content, it's obviously for spam for which can consist of phishing ads. It can consist of ads that take you to somewhere to download malware on your system. It can be for all different things. It can be for political propaganda and all of that around elections or otherwise the fake news so to speak scams phishing bullying propaganda etc there's also a whole business on creating followers so i know that people who are famous or who are aspiring to be famous or aspiring to get influencer deals on instagram and twitter and tiktok Sometimes they can pay a service to hire followers, essentially, or buy followers. And a lot of times those are bot accounts, B-O-T, but they're also B-O-U-G-H-T, if we're being honest. So now they're bot, bot accounts. Sorry, I amuse myself sometimes, but I could hear a collective eye roll of almost anyone that's listening. And I don't blame you. For native apps or online e-commerce, fintech as well, in some cases, there can be referral code fraud. So if an app is offering $20 every time you refer a friend, I might set up like 5, 10 accounts and refer myself back and forth with 5 or 10 different emails to get to stack up those referral codes. There's a lot of other more elaborate schemes, and especially with bots, this can be in the thousands, but that's just a simplified example. There can be account opening promo codes like the PayPal issue that I talked about a few months ago where PayPal and Venmo wanted to, their user base. And so as a form of customer acquisition, they offered $10 for every person who opened a new account with them. So there was a scripted attack of 4.5 million accounts that targeted them for this, essentially received $45 million. I don't know when they identified it and if they really did pay out that money, but that's how much they were targeting. Uh, And PayPal had to disclose that because they're a public company and sometimes those things have to be disclosed. Sometimes fake accounts are opened just to age the account to sell later. Depending on the company, they might know that The longer your account's been open, the more lenience they may have on how much you spend overnight shipping or other pieces like that, really depending on the company. There are some online games that will only provide permissions to accounts that have been open for three months plus, etc. So those are just some of the ways that some of the reasons they would do that, as well as to make a purchase on a stolen card. And we're seeing fake accounts really going up in retail for the purpose of refund fraud. They know that if there is a series of refund claims like, oh, I didn't get my package on the same account, those sales probably won't ever be approved in the first place if you place like a fourth order on that account, so to speak. So they're opening multiple accounts. In the fraud as a service world, there are some people that just do nothing but open accounts and then resell them. It just really varies on their skill and what they can sell, which is almost anything. <laughs> so ultimately, anyone who wanted to outright purchase any tech company should. Be concerned about fake accounts overinflating their valuation. Problems with advertisers questioning the value of paid ads. Why are we paying X amount for all these ads when you say that it reached 120,000 people, but how do I know that it was 120,000 real people who have money who will buy whatever I'm selling rather than bots or scripted accounts? There's also a lot of ad fraud that goes on with fake accounts too. I guess I forgot that in my list, as well as creating spam and targeting users, which then often will reduce brand trust. I know that there are some people who have specifically decided to remove themselves from specific social media platforms because they feel like they can't trust them because there are so many fake accounts. So that does definitely reduce brand trust, as well as the time that they're on your social media network, which time equals how many times they're going to see ads on your platform. And then as always, time is money. But for Elon, I have thought he he was out of his depths even considering to purchase Twitter. Like I said, it's, it's one thing to you know become a billionaire creating a car company. And he's done great things to revolutionize technology and some parts of industry that needed it. But again, this is a whole other ballgame. And I think it's easier for people to see outside of it and be critical than it is to actually be in the weeds, understanding all of the complexities and nuances. And I don't know, I just I feel like you'd be a lot less critical of a company if you truly understood all the complexities and the decisions. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soup's Ranjan. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models. And their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, soup wasn't the only one one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, that have to be made. So from one tech founder to another, let's talk a little bit about Bolt. And like I said, I don't usually mention company names unless they're in a headline with a reputable source since so I know that they've checked it all out. Bolt's is a company that's been around in the fraud and payment space for eight years, but really in the last three years, they've exploded. The title of this article in The New York Times is that Bolt built $11 billion payment business on inflated metrics and eager investors. I think that this article did a really good job of highlighting some of the challenges that are in the VC investment game, so to speak. and I'll talk about that a little bit more. But in just the last three years, valuations for Bolt went from two hundred and fifty million to eleven billion dollars. So they were founded eight years ago, first as a crypto company, then a fraud prevention company with a chargeback guarantee. and then they added product for payment processing, and they changed they promised or they claimed they were going to change the payments landscape by p- creating a one-click payment experience. So, Just like how Amazon has the one-click buying, but it's just for companies that sell on Amazon. It's just for their site. I know that there are actually other companies that have the one-click pay by Amazon, but it's through them. So Amazon's alone processing the payments and all of that. The thought behind it is the faster the checkout process, the more people are going to check out and the more money they're going to spend. The claims in the article include Ryan Breslow, he was the CEO and founder in He was the CEO until January of this year. He actually started the business when he was 19. I believe he's 27 now. He often over-exaggerated their growth numbers and their technology capabilities. In 2018, Bolt began publicly pitching merchants on its fraud protection service. Mr. Breslow talked up Bolt's algorithm for detecting fraud, saying that it additionally used human review when cases looked risky. And then it talks about how important fraud prevention is in e-commerce. We know that. In the beginning, risk analysts manually reviewed hundreds of transactions a day, according to a former employee with direct knowledge of the product. Analysts had access to enough transaction data to identify customers online and would sometimes approve or decline transactions just based on their gut, such as by visiting their LinkedIn pages rather than an algorithm, the person said. Bolt later began using its software to process more transactions automatically, but they claimed to have an automatic algorithm prior to just, but while they still just had manual review of people who didn't necessarily know your company and your customers because you were outsourcing it, which in some cases can actually be great. But in this case, it doesn't seem like they were very well trained, but I could be wrong. Employees were encouraged to approve transactions even when they looked risky which contributed to large losses for Bolt because they provided a fraud chargeback guarantee, former employees said. But the approach kept merchants on the platform, which was important because Bolt used its merchant count as a key metric in fundraising. Then the next one, Internally, Bolt was betting that much of its future business would come from processing payments for some 2 million merchants who sell, ship, and process payments on Shopify, a Canadian e-commerce giant, according to people familiar with the plans. Bolt had already begun processing payments for individual merchants on Shopify's network, they said. And then they went on to talk about something else I'm going to talk about in a minute. But actually what ended up with Shopify, though, is that Shopify ended up removing them from their network, I think in 2020, from their platform, because Shopify discovered that they were processing payments for Shopify customers by bypassing the Shopify checkout product, uh, which is against Shopify's terms of service. Bolt was planning on partnering with Shopify and doing the processing for them and providing their one-click checkout to Shopify. That ended and They were left to keep getting merchants themselves rather than joining that platform. They announced that they were processing all payments on their platform for Authentic Brands Group, which includes bigger payment or parent company that owns Brooks Brothers, Forever 21, Lucky Brands and several others. And they placed on their websites bragging to investors and also to anyone that visited that they were working exclusively with Authentic Brands Group and with all of their brands. However, they were really just processing payments for Forever 21 and Lucky Brand. It's still good business, but definitely not as big as all of the brands that ABG represents. And now, as of the end of April, Authentic Brands Group, Is suing Bolt for failing to deliver the technology Bolt claimed to have. And they also claim that Forever 21 lost over $150 million caused by Bolt directly. I read the filing and it says it's due to a material diminution in gross sales due to a failed integration. So this is a big deal, right? They're suing them for a lot of money. I don't think that happens a ton. I do know of a few companies that have gone back to their fraud provider for a make good um, saying, hey, you guys made this change in your model or rules, et cetera. And we can tie a direct line to that, to our losses of X. So we need you to pay us back, even if there isn't a fraud guarantee. I know that that happens at times. And sometimes the provider will come back with a lower amount and say, okay, we'll credit your account X or whatever it is. That happens, but it rarely makes it to this level of suing. So I imagine that this brand would not want to admit that they kind of got hustled unless it was really bad and costing a retail brand when retailing that great in the first place, $150 million in lost sales due to a failed integration. And I can see that. They also were very frustrated and upset that all of their brands were used to continually fundraise. So the claims were Authentic Brands Group for putting all of their transactions through Volt and that they were very happy and everything was wonderful to get new investors uh, as well as new prospects. And ABG is upset with that because they weren't doing that. And they felt like they were And in some ways. OK, I'll get into my whole take and then. Yeah. So I was going to start going, oh, wait. So this is another example of someone outside of payments or fraud. Ryan Brussel was 19 when he started Bolt, as I said, looking at our industry from the outside and saying, I can make it better, faster, stronger. Sometimes they can. I was very skeptical of Stripe when it first started, for example, and I'm not saying that they've been perfect all along their journey. I don't know many companies that have, but they've certainly far exceeded any expectations of a lot of people in the payments process, as Square is another one, right? Jack Dorsey didn't know much about payments, but he hired the right people and figured it out. And their competitive advantage a lot of times is their speed and their technology, because let's face it, the acquiring process in payments is, especially for some of the larger ones that have been around a long time, the technology can be hard to innovate or adapt on it's quite old and it's just layers and layers of code that doesn't mean that they're not reliable that they're not really good at what they do and knowledgeable they are but so there have been situations and outliers but there's just i think of ns8 i just keep thinking of that as i read about bolt and i know bolt is still around i'm not saying these are just accusations and reports however like i said The New York Times has a lot of journalistic integrity and does a lot of research. And some of these things are very consistent with what I've heard anecdotally felt like it was appropriate to talk about. I also think they had a bit of an identity crisis, at least for me. I wasn't sure what Bolt did exactly for a long time. I was like, are they fraud prevention? Are they a payments company? Are they a one-click checkout? Where do they fit? I would sometimes have merchants or even solution providers ask me about them, especially when they'd raise more money. And I didn't know that much. So I would say that. I think that they didn't necessarily, or if they did go to a lot of conferences, I don't remember seeing them, but also their explosive growth was really like right before the pandemic and on. So it's not like We would see them at the same conferences anyway, because we didn't have them. But I will say that their sales staff has been pretty, uh, I was going to say relentless, but we can say they were uh, passionate. Uh, And I definitely would hear about them from merchants who wanted my input. Overselling and under-delivering this was a big theme for NS8 too. They would promise or claim that they had functionality that didn't exist or that they didn't even understand just to try to close a sale. That sometimes does need to happen a little bit in the startup phase. And I, I get that, right? There needs to be some, because startups aren't always going to have everything finalized. So I've worked with early stage startups and that's why you have pilots. That's why you have beta programs. That's why you have the program to ask for partners to POC at first. And there are some companies that really enjoy that because then they get to influence the, the stage and, and influence the, the product and the iterations and the functionality. But when you don't say that, when you say that it does something that it doesn't do, at some point, you're going to have a client say, "Okay, you promised this. I'm expecting this. And if you don't have it, you don't have it. So I do get that sometimes in early stage startups, you do have to almost fake it like you make it. But there's a difference between saying, hey, we have that on our roadmap. This is going to happen eventually or This is something that we'd love to do, but we need a partner to help us create it. I just had a conversation like that with a client a few days ago was, yeah, actually we could totally do that, but we need someone to test it out on make sense and they're honest about it rather than yeah we can do that we do it all the time and there's actually some internal documents in this article that show that in their FAQ for their sales staff they basically would say that they would say if they ask you what platforms uh, your answer should depend on their excitement of the product and also how big their brand is you know lots of oh yeah we do you know it's just that was the way they were trained like I said being honest about the difference between current capabilities and what's on the roadmap is really important and that is what really separates out the startups that I see be successful and the ones that that aren't. Also most fraud experts can see right through bullshit and bluster and they do and then they tell their friends and that I'm going to talk about in just a second too because this is a point that I think all solution providers should learn or hear at least in just a minute but First, other things that I think have been mistakes or at least lessons to learn from this, they seemed to be more focused on fundraising and getting more VC money than the product capabilities and value proposition. Like I said, it's a dance, right? That's why there are some CEOs that just fundraise for a round and then they go back to overseeing the product development and the rollouts and the implementations and all of that and then go back for another round later, rather than continually raising money on new rounds. There were reports in this article that Some of the senior leadership have been floating around a $14 billion valuation for even more VC money, but it sounds like more VCs are doing a little more research and deciding not to go forward. This is something that I really think a lot of solution providers can learn from. So they use prospects brand logos and companies that couldn't use them. So there were some companies that they would sign up before even knowing if they could be integrated Uh, if the platform that they use for e-commerce or their OMS would integrate or their checkout flow or whatever would integrate to Bolt uh, they would sign them up anyway or but they would put their logo on their site or they would have in this case with authentic brands group they would put all of their brands on there even though they processed for only two both on their website as well as to their prospective investors you know, really saying, oh, these people, even if they had a conversation, it sounded like even if they've had a few conversations with a merchant, if they had a pitch meeting coming up, that logo may end up on their pitch deck. That was the way I read the article. So they used them to overstate who their customers were on their websites and with prospective merchants. So either in their pitch deck, like to prospective merchants or to Perspective VCs that say, look at all these companies we work. I often tell merchants and I think a lot of big merchants are people who have been in the fraud world for a long time and payments too. They shouldn't care that much about what other brands use them. However, companies that don't have a fraud or payments uh, specialist on staff, especially a seasoned one, may not know that. So they may not understand that just because they have this brand logo on there, doesn't mean that they that that brand sends all of their traffic through that fraud provider or through that payment processor. They could just use them for one small region or one line of business. In this case, they may not use them at all. But also every business is different. So just because, especially in fraud, payments a little bit, but especially in fraud, just because one company uses a solution provider doesn't mean that it's going to work as well for your business model because there's different situations for each one. And there's just different use cases and all kinds of things. And so that's one thing to think of. But also when you see a competitor's logo on their site, for instance, and you're like, oh, maybe we could get access to the consortium data or, oh, if my competitor likes them, we have a similar business model, then all that can heavily influence a decision. I have worked with clients before that have said, our direct competitor uses Y, so we think we should use Y. And I'm like, well, have you talked to your direct competitor? Do you know if they know what they're doing? Do you know if they did their due diligence or if they just fell for whatever the sales rep said, or there was another reason why they they chose that solution provider? That just shouldn't be a huge reason why you move forward with somebody. And I know that solution providers are probably like, hey, I'm really proud of the brands on our website. And you should be as long as they are your customers. I'm just saying from a merchant perspective, You still need to do your due diligence. You can't just say, okay, they probably did, so I'll just do what they did. You have no idea, especially because I've seen behind the scenes so many times, I can say that that's not always the case. It's also just a very dangerous game to put prospective merchants on anywhere, whether it's on your pitch deck or on your fundraising deck, et cetera, because we talk to each other and (laughs) it gets around. I know there are some solution providers who really rely heavily on the name game. So for instance, when we're at conferences, some of them will make a point to say, well, I have a meeting with this big brand and so I can meet you in an hour or, oh yeah, we're talking to that brand. And I know that they do that for credibility. And I know that in a short conversation, sometimes that is a good way to lead. However, we are a small industry with long memories and we all talk to each other, especially enterprise brands. And this is something that I tell the vendor clients that I work with. A lot of them actually already know this because I am selective with the vendor companies that I work with. But if you're going to mention a company's name, you, in my perspective, better have their permission that you're able to do that. And they better be using you and they better be happy because often what happens is merchants want user validation, right? So they'll go up to the person at that company that you named and said, hey, I'm thinking about talking to these guys. What do you think? Or they said that you guys work together. What do you think of them? We don't work together. We just had one meeting. And maybe the provider did say we're talking to them. But what came across to the merchant when they took in that information was we're working with them. OK, now they go to that merchant and say, hey, what's your experience with them? And they're like, they said that we're working with them and we aren't. Like, how can I trust them with all my transactions if I can't trust them just to not say that we're talking to them? I just want to have a meeting without saying my brand name. That's a big deal. And it's something I saw happen a lot at MRC this last year in March in Vegas. Several friends were very annoyed by it. And honestly, we're like, we I don't even want to proceed with conversations with that brand or with that vendor, even if we were making progress. Now that I know that they're telling other merchants or other people in general that we're talking, I don't trust them anymore. There was a situation on a public, well, a webinar for our industry, and this has actually happened more than once, but this particular situation, a merchant at a rather large brand was talking. And a very ambitious salesperson wrote in the comments that they love working with that person and that their company works with that person at that brand. And not only did that cause a lot of problems, but it turned out that they were just in a POC. And my understanding is that POC got terminated and did not turn into a full contract. And that the person who was speaking even got a talking to from their bosses for even Being on that webinar, even though they did have permission, it was just like they didn't know that was going to be exploited, especially for public companies. They can't have that information out there. And so if you're a sales representative, I think you need to be really careful about what you say about big brands. I know that you think that's helping you, but it's actually hurting you. There's one particular company that would have so many more enterprise brands if their head salespeople wouldn't go blabbing around who they're talking about. I can think of several situations where there were big brands considering a contract with a specific solution provider. And when that solution provider got ahead of themselves and said that they were working with them before they were, that got back to the merchant very quickly, not in a, not even in a gossipy way, in a curious way, right? Like merchants are always looking for validation from their peers because this industry is unregulated. Each product varies in ability and skill. And honestly, a lot of companies say the same things. So merchants are like, I'll just go to my peers and ask them how it's working. So they're not trying to stir up trouble. They assume that company is fully on the system, that they are a user of that vendor. It all gets blown up when The perspective, the first perspective merchant whose brand was used in the conversation finds out about it. And often as a vendor, you're not going to find out that's the reason why they're not talking to you anymore. You're not going to know that's why they chose not to move forward. But I can tell you, as somebody who has heard this story multiple times from multiple merchants in lots of different areas, working with vendors in fraud, working with vendors in chargebacks and payments, gateways, PSPs, et cetera, just knock it off. If you can't sell to a prospective merchant based on the quality of your product, the success data that you already have. And honestly, by just, you don't have to say the merchant's name. You can just say, Hey, we're working with a retailer and we've seen X results. Honestly, enterprise merchants with big brands, they appreciate that so much more because their worry is if I'm the merchant who you're telling, right, you're telling me, Ooh, we're, we're working with, or we're talking to this brand. I'm going to think. Great. So if we start getting down the road and having more conversations, are you going to be talking about my company that way? That is 100% their question. And they don't want to get in trouble with their bosses for having that out there. And it happens more frequently than you would think. So that is one of the biggest ways to lose trust with enterprise merchants. So it's important for enterprise employees to be protective of their company brand. So whether you're talking about their company prematurely before you work together or you're telling them about a company, that you work with without that company's permission, then that can really burn you. So that is your free consulting advice of the day. Like I said, we are a small industry with long memories. It's really important to ensure that the people representing your brand are respectful and knowledgeable and kind and not name dropping and doing all that stuff. I know I've been promising a vendor behavior episode for a while. I just I want to do it right. And I just haven't had the time to do all of the hours of prep. I already take about an hour and a half to prepare each one of these episodes. So it'll take even longer for that one. But I do owe it to you guys. And I think I'm going to do it in a couple different ways, not just one big episode. And then I mentioned this at the beginning, but I will be talking about this more. I kind of put down half of a news story is what I called it. But Google announced last week that it's rolling out one click shopping which yes, is ironic because that's what Bolt uh, is working towards as well. I'm sure that that probably wasn't great news for them either this week. Uh, And I know that Fast, the company that was a direct competitor with Bolt, filed for bankruptcy, I believe, or I know that they're Uh, no longer. So I I hope I got that right. If not, it's just that they are no longer. So this is a space that's very competitive and I think requires a lot more work than was anticipated, but it does make sense from a browser perspective. So Chrome is going to be rolling this out. They will also offer VCN, the virtual card numbers, and I'm trying to find out info on how that could impact online fraud and payments, uh, especially in e-commerce and marketplaces and B2C for bin information, for understanding the last four digits of the card in case a customer calls, just all the reasons. It's a form of tokenization, but there's some discrepancies on whether you'll still be able to see the last four or maybe the first six of the funding source of a virtual card, depending on if it's through GPay or through the autofill. So anyway, I'm getting a lot of conflicting info. So I hope to have more information on a future podcast. This episode was a little longer than expected, but I hope you guys appreciated hearing just thoughts I had on these topics. I think that we can learn from other people's uh, mistakes or other people's lessons, so to speak. If you take away one thing from both of these cases, it's that if you are an outsider, outside of fraud, outside of payments, outside of abuse, outside of content moderation, you can't always assume that you are can fix the problem without really understanding the details. There are a lot of things that if it were possible, I think a lot of us would have already found a way to do it. So that's not true for everything, but that is a true in a lot of cases. So I'm going to wrap up this episode today, but I look forward to talking with you more next week.